0: And welcome back, Robbie Hirsch, from Spain. How was your trip?
1: Yes, it was very productive, very useful trip. Going back there again for the final trip
0: in mid-May. What do you mean by the final trip?
1: This was a sort of pilot trip where I was really not quite training, but informing those who are going to be each in charge of a bus of students where we're going, what we're doing, the history behind it. You give Uh, out
0: your trade secrets to others?
1: In this particular case, that's fine. They're not going to uh, become tour guides (laughs) in their own right.
0: Well, okay, welcome back. Just as quick recap, Modena is who we were discussing last week, and he was a very unusual figure, as you described, both in terms of his rabbinic pursuits, his writings, his interests, his views.
1: Yes, I mean, so much so that, 300 years after his death his legacy is still very much a matter of debate
0: right as we will go into more detail in this week his personal life you mentioned he suffered major setbacks in ver- various areas last week we touched on his gambling and that has received quite a bit of interest for right. rabbinic figure gambling can yeah. you expound on that a bit
1: Okay, yes, obviously, that was going to be one which would occupy a major segment of this week's podcast. Gambling was evident across Jewish communities in Europe. And in Italy, we find Taconus ordinances in various towns, uh, limiting it, banning it, fining gamblers. And when he was either 12, possibly 13, he wrote... Sur Meirah, which was a dialogue between two characters who he names, Eldad and Medad, on the virtues and evils of gambling. It's an entire booklet, and uh, Rabbi Modena used sources from the Gemara, Medrash, Rashi, Rambam, Sefer Mitzvah's Godel, the Tur, etc.
0: What do you mean by the virtues?
1: Okay. So he, Maydard in this case, argued that gambling is a commercial venture, which is therefore no less honourable than any other way of earning a livelihood. And in every business, participants assume risk. I mean, we are talking about a form of gambling which is somewhat skill-based as opposed to that which is pure chance whereas Eldad showed that gambling can lead to a violation of every one of the Ten Commandments. Medad agrees in the end that gambling is vain, but doesn't concede that it violates halacha, and argues that it's simply an unwise practice. So he already at an early age has set out an entire almost what would later be a responsum
0: on the matter. So it's definitely an unusual habit for a rabbi, I think we can agree on. Right. How often did he was he was he a real addict? How often did he go?
1: Okay, so we mentioned last week that he started in fifteen ninety-four, and then again in fifteen ninety-eight He stops for 18 months until 1600. It's on and off in 1620 after two years, in 1626 after a two-year break. Um, So it is an addiction in a sense, but he behaves very differently to the sort of the general symptoms that uh, normally apply. For instance, he recorded in full detail in his autobiography what he had done. He is transparently honest. Now, you know, who does that?
0: You sin in private and you repent in public.
1: Right. But he talks about it quite candidly and he often turned to it in desperation, either financial or personal. In Pesach 1620, for instance, His son's behavior, we mentioned last week that he sent him packing to the Middle East, but prior to that, uh, his son's villain was jailed for 12 days, and that caused him quite a degree of anxiety. And at that same time, he had a dread of his imminent demise because he'd been told that he would pass away in his early 50s so that sort of accounts for why he returns at that moment in time and then in 1625 his grieving over the loss of his grandson david all played a role
0: gambling as we all know can be lucrative but at the same time we all know everyone can loses in the end what right. were what were his losses
1: i guess ultimately everyone does lose and sometimes the extent was quite large In April and May 1621, he went heavily into debt. As a result, although he initially had a 16-month commitment to teach in the Ashkenazi shul in Venice, because of his debts, he worked there for another 10 months, even though he found the work difficult because he had to pay back that which he'd lost. And in fact, to raise the required amount, he took all the copies left of his safer colosyhood i think he had 60 copies and he sold them cheaply he also incurred major losses in the early part of 1626 although by then he wouldn't have had to leave the ghetto to gamble because by this time many people in the town or on the island did so and he had to draw a two-year advance of his pay from one of the schools in which he taught, which led to the fact that in the spring of 1626, he took an oath that he would not gamble for two years until all his debts were paid. And in fact, there is still a Hebrew document from the 1620s in Venice written by a person who promised... That beginning on Cholomoed Pesach, he would not gamble for two years. And, you know, perhaps this document is actually his.
0: Wow. Difficult to know. Okay, so you're describing a rabbi with a gambling addiction problem, which is incredibly unusual. How did that influence his image?
1: So obviously, definitely in later years after his passing, any picture of him would be greatly influenced, tainted by this behavior, which we will deal more with next week. But the interesting thing is that it never impeded his ability to function in his various and varied duties. However, the stakes were raised, pun intended, (laughs) When the lay leadership of Venice banned gambling outright in 1628, which means he was now also risking excommunication by the Kahal for gambling, and this brings him into conflict with them, not for the first time. But he did not think that the Kahila would enforce any excommunication. And this, the, the lack of follow-through, was in his view the worst possible outcome because if you create a, a takana, an ordinance, and then ignore it, this is a chilul Hashem. If the ban is violated and people go unpunished, it's a you know an offense against God, which is far worse than any sin associated with gambling itself. And the, gam- the ban was violated and gambling continued. In fact, Jews gambled in what he refers to as groups of 10, a minion, and they gambled with non-Jews and no action was taken. And in fact, the rabbis were unhappy with the state of affairs, but they couldn't control the lay leadership who had created this
0: Takana in the first place. Similar to what we saw in Amsterdam a few weeks ago.
1: Yes, in fact, Amsterdam is modelled on Venice, so uh, very much so. So this is taking place in 1628. By February 1630, there is still widespread dissatisfaction about this ban. When the uh, lay leadership, the Vard Katan, as they are called, learned of this, rather than in any way slowing down... One night, they order that the text of the ban be affixed to the walls of the ghetto, like the tzetlach in Meir Sharim. And there were those who turned to Modena for a clarification of the issues. Now, he had hoped that the karl would see sense and change it. When they didn't, in fact, they they sort of increased their uh, opposition, he could no longer restrain himself from responding in print. And he wrote his rabbinic opinion on the matter, dealing with two basic issues. Was the prohibition against gambling strong enough in halacha to justify enforcement with excommunication for those who transgressed? And did the kahal in Venice have the power to create such a ban? So he goes through, you know, all the traditional Jewish views on gambling, as he had at the age of 12, the concept of a smachta, the the mission and the Gomorrah and Sanhedrin. But the major theme of his arguments was that the kahal had acted improperly by not getting authorization from the Rabbonim. And he also argued, very interestingly, that a person has the right to lose his own physical possessions without incurring spiritual punishment. In other words, gambling is its own punishment, and it doesn't require additional sanctions.
0: <laughs> Bit of a twisted theory.
1: It's an interesting argument. And he then said that the plague that had occurred in 1629, it was really an epidemic, was a fulfilment of his warnings that divine punishment would befall the Jews of Venice because of these bans of excommunication being uh, you know, violated or ignored. And he mentioned this in a Shabbos Drosha to the Svaradi community. Their leaders met and cancelled all of this legislation. But the
0: cotton of Venice didn't change their views or actions, and it was left unresolved. Oh, they could simply argue that the plague happened because of... The fact that there was widespread gambling, gambling of course. in the first place
1: yes but soon venice had other larger problems to deal with anyway because in 1630 modena and others saw the spreads of the plague in northern italy and it devastated entire cities And he remembered what had happened to so many members of his family during the previous epidemic. So he actually planned for his own death. And he arranged his response for publication in in August 1630. And he writes in his autobiography, which is always updating, that his own line wouldn't be continued. He has three sons. One has died. One has been murdered. One is in exile. And as for his two daughters, one was a widow and the other, he mentions for the first time, was having trouble with her marriage. And he then says that his major source of comfort was studying Torah, which he felt protected him, atoned for his sins and gave him solace. So this is his sort of view at the what he assumes will be the end of his life, although he will live for almost two decades post this. Now, the plague didn't reach the Venetian ghetto for several months. It hit them in September, in fact, in the days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and reached its peak in October. And in fact, if you ever visit the Jewish cemetery on the Lido, there is a marker of a mass grave of some of these victims which is just sort of mentioned there as Ebrei Jews Um, and he writes that a large number of Svaradim left Venice for the Ottoman Empire or Verona and for almost a year the Jews couldn't buy or sell abroad so there was basically no income in addition the government took more than 120,000 ducats from them and many Jews became impoverished The rich, according to him, became middle class. The middle class became poor and no one had any compassion or time for the poor because there was no money. And he talks about the health regulations for plagues in this period, which were a source of great annoyance and, of course, economic distress. Families were separated. Individuals were isolated in quarantine. Markets were closed. Goods were burnt. Um, Although the Jews were not prevented from holding religious gatherings, so he was still preaching and teaching and presenting
0: his writings for print. Sounds a lot like 17th century COVID regulations.
1: Yes, I guess it was COVID without the internet.
0: Without the exemption for religious gatherings.
1: Right. Although we eventually did get that. Yeah. And during the plague... He also prepares a collection of his letters for print, and he even composed a nusach, a text, for his own Matseva, which might sound very odd, but one of the ways in which he had been earning money was in doing just that. So the fact that he wrote his own is not too untoward. And the plague came very close to him and his family, people who lived in his own building on the same floor And then suddenly, from March 1631 to June 1631, the mortality rate in the two ghettos drops drastically compared to what was happening in the rest of the island. And Modena wrote that it was God who had created an astonishing division between Jews and Christians because, you know, very few Jews became ill or died. And eventually the plague abated and celebrations were held in Venice in November of 1631. Although by the time it had run its course, out of a total population of 140,000, 46,000, almost a third, had died. Amongst the Jews, they lost around 450, which is about a fifth. Although by 1642, there were again 2,600 Jews in Venice. Just the footnote to the uh, plague, after it ended, his gambling returned and continues for another five months. And he lost all of the money that he had made during this period, including a windfall
0: that he earned in 1630. Did he ever manage to kick the habit
1: of gambling? Yeah. Yes. In 1633, he finally
0: stops. So it does come to an end. You mentioned tensions between Modena and the lay leads of the community. I assume the ban on gambling wasn't the only example of tensions.
1: Neither the only nor the worst.
0: (laughs) Um, In
1: 1638, he called his compatriots worthless because he said they despised Torah. (laughs) <laughs> in 1639, he called them thorns in my eyes. But an actual example of the tension is seen in an event where the Rabonim had written permission of three members of the secular um, sort of government of Venice to excommunicate a Jew called Isaac de Alva, who they ruled was a sinner. But as a result of the lay leadership, And an informer's testimony to the government, all eight rabbis, including Modena, were taken before the Venetian courts, arrested, and only after a lengthy investigation were they released on a very high bail. A while later, after... Quite a deal of apprehension and expense were the rabbis acquitted. So there was little love lost between the rabbonim and the lay leaders, definitely at certain points in his time in Venice.
0: What was this Isaac up to?
1: Well, as we saw with Amsterdam, excommunication could come for a variety of reasons, some of which we could think fully agree with in the 21st century, some of which were particular to maintaining what they considered- Law and order. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we don't necessarily have detail. Now, his strong views about his generation also came to the fore regarding Hebrew. He borrows a posuk in Yirmiyahu, and he writes, or he paraphrases, that one person in each city and two in each province- New Hebrew grammar because it was neither taught nor learned, and he felt that they didn't understand the differences between, you know, nouns and verbs, let alone the differences between vowels and accents. He also criticized those who were sharp witted in the obscure rabbinic logic called pilpul, which uh, basically builds castles of theories in the air. And as he put it, pilpul was trying to make pill into pull and pull into pill, which in English means turning a bean into an elephant and an elephant into a bean, which is a pun on those two words. Now, one of his other jobs beyond teaching and rabbinics and proofreading, printing, and giving sermons was cantorial. On one occasion for Simchas terra, there was a musical performance in the Spanish synagogue, which is the largest in the ghetto, And it'd been decorated with silver and jewels. And there was a throng of Christian nobility and their womenfolk who attended. It's described as the police having to guard the gates to ensure order. Interestingly, Modena himself didn't record this achievement in his autobiography. It's verified by an outsider, and the existence of a musical manuscript which includes 21 pieces of rhymed poetry which he had written. On the subject of music, Modena also initiated and was in charge of editing and printing the first book of Hebrew music which was ever published. He persuaded a friend of his, Solomon de Rossi, who was a Jew from one of the oldest Italian families, who was a musician and a composer in the Duke's court of Mantua, he persuaded him to publish his compositions for Shabbos and Tov, which included pieces for, you know, Yigdal and Adain Olam and Kaddish. It would be not only the first, but the only publication for the next century on Jewish music. But Modena had no model for a Hebrew music book, and he had to solve an obvious problem. Music is read from left to right, Hebrew from right to left. Um, So he decides to print from left to right because he felt that most Chazanim inquires know the words of Tehillim and the pieces by heart. They don't need to read the words carefully. They just need the words there. But, you know, they're not so particular about consulting it word by word
0: clearly a very talented, unique man. Was he known beyond Italy? Was he ever in touch with the rabbis from further afield?
1: Yes, we'll we'll come to that, but perhaps through talking about the topic which I wanted to deal with next, in which a great change occurred in his life by approximately 1620, which has an outcome of how he was perceived in Italy and abroad, and that is his views of Kabbalah. So, he had received a lot of exposure to Kabbalah when he was growing up. And in Venice, he did proofreading and editing of a number of Kabbalistic works for print. And in fact, he added Kabbalistic ideas to his Droshus when he included quotations from the Zohar. Although he wrote that he felt obliged to make these references in order to capture the attention of his congregation, a bit like nowadays. <laughs> and he had close personal relationship with Kabbalists. He has correspondence with the Romami Fano, whose children he actually taught at one point. And during the summer of 1621, he met, he met um, um, the Shlo, Rabishaya Horowitz, who was in Venice on his way to Eretz Israel from Prague. And the fact that Modena mentions this meeting many years later shows that it clearly had an impact on him. So he was versed in Kabbalah and was aware of its impact. But there is a turning point in his views about Kabbalah. One we can point to is his meeting with Rabisral Sarug, who was an itinerant Kabbalist. They met in Venice and he soon became the leading Kabbalist in Northern Italy. But Modena's view, unlike uh, Rav Sarug, was that philosophy and Kabbalah are separate realms. Uh, the way he put it, Modena put it, was that there is a difference between the seven sciences and the ten spheres. And he felt that Rav Sarug is blurring the boundaries. Although his reaction could have also been motivated by concerns about the legitimacy of spreading the teachings of the Arizals outside of He was also particularly concerned when he heard from Christians and from Jewish apostates so-called proofs of the truth of Christianity based on Kabbalistic books, and he wanted to refute this. It was being quoted that a Jew in the times of the Rosh Hashanim had justified his conversion to Christianity with Kabbalistic explanations and Modena felt that you could now use Kabbalah to prove absolute anything from Chumash, from Tanakh but to speak out against Kabbalah was difficult because the fundamentals of rabbinic Judaism were similar to those of Kabbalah, i.e. reliance on the oral law he went ahead eventually anyway and he attacked the idea that all of kabbalah is actually of ancient origin by asking how could oral teachings have been transmitted from moshe all the way through to the 17th century through the tradition of mesorah without having become known in detail to the gonyim and in the talmud unless we say that the zohar for instance is in fact a series of basic texts and ideas, which over the centuries had been elaborated and expanded upon, much like the Mishnah to the Gomorrah. But it's not all the work of one individual, which is a view held by other abonim over the ages as well.
0: What's this mean practically? Like, Where did he part ways with Kabbalah?
1: We'll once again touch upon it next week. But for instance, he rejects the idea of Gilgulim of the sort of uh, migration of souls or part of a soul into uh, a future generation. Although, interestingly, on this particular point, in 1774, the Chido, Rav Azulay, published the first volume of his Shem HaGedolim, which is uh, an alphabetical listing of Hebrew authors and their books, And he uh, describes uh, Modena as a Venetian rabbi, a grammarian, a poet, a darshan, an author. And he wrote that Modena had written an autobiography. But even though in there, Modena had written that he didn't believe in transmigration of souls in Gilgulim, according to a report that Rav Azulai includes in his encyclopedia, A neighbor of Modena's gave birth to a child who became sick at the age of one month. And after six months, the infant was in extremis, was on the point of death. So the mother of the child called in uh, of Modena to say Vidui, And while Modena was there, the infant, who is, remember, six months old, sang psukim and said the Shema. And died. And from that day on, according to the moderner Modena believed in Gilgulim because he'd seen in that young child the soul of, obviously, an adult, which seemingly contradicted all of Modena's anti-Kabbalistic writings. And the appearance of this story motivated a lot of people to find out more of what his views actually were, although it's got to be said that the Chidah was most likely quoting from sources that were inaccurate or not complete, which means it's not possible to know exactly what his beliefs were. And once again, we, we will come to more of this next week.
0: Okay. Well, I, I guess we'll hold out until then. But back to the idea of interacting with a broader audience than those in his community alone. You said you were going to talk about okay, that.
1: So for that, we have his printed response which are written to obviously a varied audience and to a wider audience. Maybe I'll share a couple. In 1610, there was a Darshan called Rav Isaac Gershon, who every week for his drosha in the large synagogue in Venice would harangue those that walked around bareheaded Jews. Although Rav Modena said that you're allowed to be bareheaded because bareheadedness is not lightheadedness. It's not kalus <laughs> roish, and there's no halachic ban against it in the writings of the Rishonim. So he's asked to clarify his views, and he sets out four reasons why Jewish law might forbid it, chukas agoi, imitating non-Jewish practices, or that it's idolatrous, or that it's uh, erva, or that it's arrogance. But in a lengthy response, he proved that there was no prohibition against walking or even praying or making a bracha bareheaded in the Talmud or in the early commentaries. So he allowed it? not completely. His conclusion was that since the shul was a miniature sanctuary and Jews wanted to appear as they did in the temple, so they covered their heads. And it isn't good to accustom children to bareheadedness, but halachically there's no objection. And what's interesting is that there's a similar full response by the marshal in Poland, which was unknown to Modena at the time, that Jews are allowed to walk and eat and study and pray bareheaded. And he follows many of the same arguments as Modena, but he rules eventually in the same way that it's uh, best practice not to do it, but not from a halachic perspective,
0: which is interesting. Sorry. Please don't practice this at home.
1: Exactly. In another responsum, he had to defend himself against the accusation that he allowed ball playing on Shabbos, which came this accusation came from Prague, of all places. And he wrote to the Rabonim of Prague that since he gave Droshas each Shabbos to between three and six hundred people, they could be witness to the fact that this accusation was a lie. And that the actual story was that the Italian synagogue, the rabbi there, Ablaib Saraval, issued a ban against any Jew who played ball with a racket on Shabbos. And at the time, Modena's oldest son, Mordechai, was still alive, and he doesn't at the time in the Italian shawl. He got very angry, and he starts discussing the rabbi's Drosha in the street And a crowd begins to gather and soon Rabbi Solomon Svarno arrives and shortly afterwards Rabbi Modena himself. I mean, you know, Venice on Shabbos is a pretty small place after all. So you can imagine that the rabbis get to hear about what's going on uh, very quickly. And both rabbis concurred. There's no prohibition because it's different from playing a ball on the ground, although. Uh, Modena adds in his responsum that no bets, no gambling can be taken on the outcome of the match, right, (laughs) from, you know, experience as to how the community deals with these things. And he also dealt with the question of whether a Jew could travel on a boat on a river or on a canal on Shabbos, which in Venice was of very practical interest and is perhaps very different to traveling at sea. So he quotes the Tosfus uh from the 13th century, who discusses the idea of using small ferry boats to cross the canals, but concludes that it's forbidden. And in fact, a few years ago, 10 years ago now, there was a group staying on the island of Gideca, which is to the south of Venice. And they wanted to know from me whether they could get to the shawl in Venice itself by boat on Shabbos. But so, of
0: course, you quoted Modena's ruling.
1: I quoted the Tosphus Rid. I was not <laughs> aware of this truva at the time. Um, but Eddie, what, what
0: is the difference between canals and... The open sea?
1: Well, simply in terms of tum, you're not going to get into, in other words, even if the amount you traverse is less than the Trum, since you are pretty likely to end up, it's only a kilometer, uh, you're likely to end up in deep waters, shall we say, although actually once you are in deep waters, it's not a halachic issue, it's only when the seabed is actually quite shallow that there is an issue. Anyway, But we digress. For some some other time, yes, exactly. In 1645, he wrote his last truva, his last responsum, and he brought together two topics which had been very important to him and showed the relationship between them. First of all, his uh, support of choral music in shul and his opposition to Kabbalah. And the truva works as follows there was a Jewish community in Senegalia a town near Ancona which had a choir which performed on the Chagim on Shemini Atzeres in 1645 a an argument broke out because of the repetition of words in davening particularly the word Kesser in the Kedusha of the Svardi repetition of Musaf. And even though each of the four singers sang the word in question only once, the question was does this violate the principle of the unity of God? Because Kesser is one of the ten spheres, and its repetition offended Kabbalists. This is the question that was addressed to him. And they then attacked the permissibility of synagogue music in general. So to resolve the question, he turned to two leading Kabbalists, although they're not named, but they're identified later. He considered to be his friends. And so obviously there were no hard feelings on their part about his views of Kabbalah. And both of them agreed that the repetition of the word wouldn't hurt. But he then goes on to quote the school of those opposed to Kabbalah, who said that, You know, halacha can't be overruled by Kabbalah. He quotes the Re'eim Rebiliyot Mizrahi in Constantinople. This is the first shuva of his collection, which had just been published, that Kabbalah can't be binding in areas of halacha. What I would like to do is finish off with the best of all his shuvos, the unanswered response. Basically, rabbis weren't paid a salary, they were paid by function. And therefore, when Modena is asked a halachic question in writing, it was expected that he'd be paid for the answer. In late 1623, he was sent a question concerning Ruven which means John Doe, who had three sons, and a question about their inheritance. But since there was no payment with the question... Modena wrote back a sarcastic but nevertheless historically informative answer. He wrote, Here in Venice, flour costs 48 lira for a bushel, wine is 10 lira for four pails, rent costs 44 ducats a year, and the book Levush Malchus costs five ducats unbound. What do I care if Reuven had three sons or 30, each riding on their own donkey? Goodbye. (laughs) Goodbye.
0: Because he wasn't
1: being paid, so he wasn't prepared to answer.
0: (laughs) You wouldn't get away with that these days. No, probably not. Just before you go, how did the non Jews view Modena? Was he was he a thing to them? Because you did mention earlier that the Christian nobility Yes
1: quite a thing. And next week we will cover the government and Modena christianity and modena and why he fled town as a result so we're
0: doing a third part to we're this. we're now
1: doing a third part
0: and the legacy there was just you too much uncovering more and more yes
1: too much field to, to cram so, into so there two. might be a fourth no 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 no. <laughs> by now we are pretty much done
0: right so thank you very much Robert hirsch another fascinating episode so looking forward to the wrap up next week please do continue sending all your questions and feedback two podcasts at jle.org.uk seeing that next week is the last in the series we will be addressing some questions um, Rabbi Hirsch is there any space left on the Italy trip I believe there's one or two spots left
1: literally there are two rooms still available and to the tw- highest 24 hours from now that could be down to one because there's a person who is considering one way or the other but yeah there'll definitely be one room still available for the next I would have thought a couple of days
0: All right, so don't all email at once Thank you, Robert Hirsch, and good night.